All right, well, ladies and gentlemen, we have officially reached a massive milestone in the Sons of History podcast. This is our 200th episode of the Sons of History podcast, and thank you so much for staying with us, I and my old pal, Alan Vakim. Howdy, sir. 200. Damn, that's a lot. That That's more than Seinfeld. I think, how many did Seinfeld have? 100, 200? I don't know. Why would you say 100, 200? Because I remember he did a special <laughs> that would be one the time. Same amount. I, th- I remember him doing a special one time, but I don't remember if it was 100th or his 200th episode. So, Well, let's say, uh, how many episodes did they have per season? Like 12, oh, 13? I, I don't know. I could tell you how many The Walking Dead have, but I don't know how many the uh, how many Seinfeld had. Even if they had 15 episodes per season, that's still not enough. Still not enough. Not 200, right? So I don't think so. Uh, Mash, Mash has beat us. Mash, Mash was on for a long time. Yeah, eleven years in a three-year war. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. And you know, and I and I remember watching Mash, and when it was just the North Koreans before the Chinese got involved, I was amazed at how it always stayed. Sta- the you know the hospital stayed stationary, or it was stationary. When the front line was moving back and forth. Yeah. You know. Go figure. They must have been in Pusan, the very bottom. That never moved. Yeah. Yeah, no. No. It was, uh, you know, I know it, it got stationary, I think, starting in 51. That's going to be my guess. I think, um, in, I think in 51 it became stationary. So it should have been a two-year, two-year war for the MASH hospital. That's true. Yeah. This is true. Uh, what a wild, what a wild thing. Um, anyways, actually, speaking of the Korean War, uh, this is the seventieth anniversary, the seventieth anniversary of it, uh, which was uh, the end of of the war. I believe it was July, uh, either July or June, one of the two. It's in the summer. Anyways, uh, unnecessary information, uh, ladies and gentlemen. If you haven't yet, I know, look, it's the uh, end of the podcast. We've only got a few episodes left, and then we're calling it a day on just the podcast. Uh, we'll still be on social media doing video projects and different things like that. Uh, we'll still be posting stuff on our YouTube channel. And speaking of, go ahead and subscribe, like, comment, share. Do it all. Do it all. You know, now is the time to do it. Uh, If you're only listening on the podcast, just the audio version, well, go ahead and subscribe to us as well. And if you don't mind, leave a rating and a review, preferably five stars, preferably something nice about Alan. He's a nice guy and he's extremely knowledgeable about all things history, most things history, almost all things history. I'll go there. I'll go there. Uh, So you've uh, left me speechless, but thank you. Then why did you say anything? Because I had to acknowledge uh, the, you know, your effort in making me feel better. So, if you would have just shed a single tear, that would have been enough, and not said anything. I'd have been like, man, I left him speechless. Yeah. But you, you wouldn't have heard it, and then therefore the camera wouldn't be coming, you know, pointing at me. That is very true. That is very true. I didn't think about that. Uh, well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we're going to have a great guest on the show. He has written three books. I've read all three of them. Fantastic stuff. His name is Don Hallway. 
crazy enough, this is his third time. And I think he and our old pal, Joe Wolverton are the ones who have been on the show the most. I think Joe has been on three times and now Don, he will be on three times. So this is, as I said, third time on the podcast. He's a regular contributor to history magazine, military heritage, military history, Renaissance magazine, and other publications. He's also a history reenactor, and typically he has like garb behind him, and we we mention it. We'll see if he has any uh, this time. So this is, as we said, the third time for him to be on the show. The first time he was on the show was April of 2022, last year. So that is just a testament to how much he's been working, how much he's been producing. Um, so... The first time we had him on the show, we talked about his book, The Last Viking, uh, the true story of King Harold Hardrada. If you like extremely violent stuff, uh, but also history, read that book. Uh, The next one, which I absolutely loved, was At the Gates of Rome, The Fall of the Eternal City, AD 410. And his most recent, now for the third time and to commemorate our 200th episode, Don Hallway is going to be with us to discuss his latest book, Battle for the Island Kingdom, England's Destiny, 1000 to 1066. Are you ready for this conversation, Alan? I am ready. I am ready. Especially considering, you know, the, you know the, here's the thing that I, I, I know I'm jumping ahead here, but uh, 1066 was the year William the Conqueror captured England, and the current royal family to this day... Their lineage goes all the way to William the Conqueror. It's not a not a direct line. It made a few adjustments here and there when the Tudors and the Stuarts and then the Hanovers came in, but it goes right through there, you know. There you go. It's uh, pretty fascinating. Thousand years in, um, and it's going to be fun to have Don on the show. So without uh, without any ado, uh, further ado, we're going to bring Don on the line. We've got him. Don, how are you, man? I am great. Thanks for having me back. Well, we are more than pleased to have you back. Uh, Alan and I, are. we were discussing that uh, before you got on and well before we started recording about how excited we were to have you back on because you're always a lot of fun to, to chat with. Yeah, of information. I, I, I was supposed to. Uh, I was supposed to leave for a trip, and then uh, Dustin goes, uh, "Are you going to skip the uh, interview?" I said, "Probably." Who Who's in it? And he goes, "It's Don." I was like, "Oh, Don." Okay, well, all right, you know what? The trip can wait. So, I'm doing that for you. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So here's my uh, my first real question. So. The book is called The Battle for the Island Kingdom. How did it come down to a battle between the Anglo-Saxons, the Normans, and the Vikings, and how did they end up converging? Well, you've sort of got three successive ways of invasion. I mean, the, uh, the Romans, after they, run, after they ruled southern Britain for however many hundreds of years, I mean, 300-odd years, they stepped off around 407 AD, something like that. And at that point, the Saxons, the Angles and the Saxons were already uh, doing pirate raids along the coast. When the uh, Romans got out, there was a power vacuum. They more or less moved in. They were sort of like proto-Vikings, if you would. Uh, and over the next uh, three, four hundred years, uh, they took over, drove most of the native Celtic tribes, the Britons and the 
picks. They drove them into Cornwall and up in, in Wales and uh, Scotland and more or less took over England. Now, the Angles and the Jutes and the Saxons were not all united at that point. Uh, they were different kingdoms. You had Mercia and Wessex and Essex and Northumbria. They were all different kingdoms, but they were all Teutonic tribes from across the English Channel. So they were fighting among themselves when all of a sudden the second wave of invaders comes over, which is the Danes uh, from Denmark, obviously, the Vikings. They land and basically drive the, the Angles, the, let's just call them the Anglo-Saxons, it's what everybody knows them as, basically drove them down into southern and western England, Mercia and Wessex, and uh, probably would have taken the whole place over if not for Alfred the Great who was the first great king of the Anglo-Saxons, uh, he convinced them that, you know, we're, we're different tribes here, but if we don't unite, these Vikings are going to subjugate us and make us their slaves. We need to unite to push them back. And although he didn't finish the job, his descendants did. And uh, at the point where the, the, Danish, the Danes were living in the Dane law, the northern part of, of England, the Saxons finally pushed them off. So this goes on back and forth. The Vikings, that wasn't their last time. They came back and, you know, went back and forth. They were still fighting over it. And they, ultimately, in the years of the book, the Vikings did succeed in taking over all of England. They finally did conquer the whole thing. And uh, they, were, they were in charge. But then through the various soap operas aspect of the book, as you know, things kind of changed. And it was an Anglo-Saxon king back on the throne. When the third invasion comes, which is the Normans from just across the channel in France, they came up for reasons which I'm sure we'll cover and uh, proceeded to take the whole thing over again. So for one year there, 1066, you had Anglo-Saxons, Vikings and Normans all fighting over the same kingdom. I want to give sort of a an idea of how brutal uh, this era this time period is and I think if anybody watches like a Viking movie or a TV show or reads one of your books or any book on Vikings uh, or any book on sort of medieval they'll get an idea of it but I think this guy uh, sort of is a microcosm of how vicious and brutal the politics and just the time itself was uh, I think he's sort of the darker element of it but this guy's name is Idric Striona am I saying that right uh, yeah, so I think his persona helps underline how vicious the period uh, time could be. Who was he, and do you think he accurately represents the darker side of the royal echelons of the medieval period? I think he does. Uh, what you were saying about betrayals, that guy was betrayal personified. I mean, he came up through the ranks under the, uh, well, he served whatever king happened to be in power at the time, whether that was, uh, you know, an Anglo-Saxon king, uh, whether it was Ethelred the Unready, or it was uh, the Vikings, Fine Forkbeard, whoever, or Canute the Great, whoever was in power at the time. Uh, Edric wanted to be his right-hand man, and he would betray anybody to get that position. And uh, it, what amazed me the whole way through the book was, he was so well known as a traitor that you can't, it was unbelievable to me that anybody would trust him and take him back into service. But what he had going for him was uh, he was an Earl of Mercia. He had a lot of men, fighting men behind him. 
and he had the power to tip a battle either way, depending on what side he was on. So even if you didn't trust him, it was good to have him on your side, despite the fact that in the course of the book, he changed sides in mid-battle a couple of times. Uh, again, just completely untrustable, but relied on himself to make the climb to the top. And I think that's what typified a lot of these guys. They knew that they couldn't trust anybody over top of them or really anybody behind them either. They had to get where they were going by the strength of their own sword arms. And uh, some succeeded and a lot failed. And he ended up getting dealt with, right? I mean, it was, I want to say it was Canute. <laughs> There's a couple different ways. Uh, Canute the Great ordered his assassination. Got Canute had finally gotten to the point where he had conquered England and didn't need Edric anymore and just decided time for you to go buddy and the stories there's a couple different versions where the canute killed him himself or had one of his other earls behead him or hang him but uh yeah either way edric did he, he almost made it to the top but he got his comeuppance at the end yeah speaking of comeuppance uh i would rather a uh, a beheading rather than an arrow up <laughs> up while i'm trying to take a dump you know <laughs> are we going to explain that or you just want to leave that one there hey that'll be for the readers the readers you guys need to to check that one out so you you'll need to read the book but let me just let you know don't read it while you're don't you don't use this book as a bathroom book uh rest assured and you'll you won't sit comfortably no you won't you'll be squirming for sure now, uh, so now England was divided into uh, four earldoms, from from what I gathered: Northumbria, Mercia, East Anglia, and Wessex. How did that come about, and did that help unify the kingdom in any way? Or when Alfred became king and his uh, his descendants continued to rule, they more when the earldoms or when the kingdoms united, Mercia and uh, Wessex, the ones you were talking about, when they united. There had to be one king over top of everybody. So those other minor kings became earls, uh, jarls, the Vikings would have called it, uh, sort of second in command of various you know, quadrants of the kingdom. So you wouldn't say that the kingdom broke up. You would say that the kingdom united from those, uh, from those existing kingdoms and those existing kingdoms became earldoms within the kingdom. Hmm. Interesting. Well, so, so that leads me to my next question. Um, were all these kingdoms, the Anglo-Saxons, now, uh, were they Catholic? Were they uh, a mixture of Catholic and pagan? Because uh, I know about in the 6th century, St. Gildas uh, arrived in England, and he wrote the book uh, On the Ruin and Conquest of, of Britain, and that's, that was pretty much what he gathered. I mean, what, I mean, what role did the church play during this whole period? Yeah, they were they were all what we would call Catholic. The the uh, um, the Reformation, you know, the breakup with the Protestants and everything that wasn't that was several centuries in the future. So they were all still what we would call the Catholic Church, uh, but they still used a lot of pagan practices. The Northumbrians, particularly, had been part of the Danewall for a couple hundred years, so they were still very Viking in their outlook, and a lot of the uh, the Christian practices, well, and that that's that's valid across Christianity. I mean, a lot of the the holidays. I mean, Christmas is a arbitrary holiday. Nobody knows exactly when Jesus was born. They more or less just set that date. 
And it was the same thing with the, with the English, the Anglo-Saxons, and even the Vikings were mostly Christian by this time. Uh, there were still a few pagan Vikings, but Christianity had pretty much spread over all of Scandinavia. England was considered the southernmost part of Scandinavia at this point, and uh, you know, half of it being under Viking rule. They were all they were all they were all Christian, but I wouldn't say they were all well practicing Christians. <laughs> they they more or less uh, did what they wanted, and then uh, went to church and asked for forgiveness. Yeah, I know. Yeah, because I know Christmas is one of the big ones that uh, people still think uh, Jesus was born on December twenty fifth, and he was. If you say so, but it has something that something to do about the shepherds that the that the men were out and out uh, doing. They were out in the fields, and that only occurs in the uh, springtime. So they say. Whoever they are. Uh, speaking of uh, religion. Um, how did divine like these which is which is interesting because we had a guest on a couple of weeks ago uh and we were talking about the ancient assyrians and how serious um the kings of the assyrians took their religion and how serious Oh, yeah, yeah. Look at that. Very good. Very good. But you're not going to do pit of despair? You kidding me? <laughs> Unbelievable. Um, no, but they like this goes way back, right? So I'm thinking right. while I'm while I'm reading your book, I'm 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 reading about these kings, um, whether they rely on uh, the the Christian god or they rely on the, on the pagan gods, they still take them very serious. And I'm like, man, this is thousands of years, even in 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 the Middle East, the Far East, um, or the Near East. Um, William the Conqueror and Harold Godwinson have a mentality of divine destiny. And you mention this several times, especially when they, they go through hardships, health-wise or, or, or war. How much did divine destiny or the, the, the mentality of I have a divine destiny play a role in both of these guys and in kingships in general? Uh, that's very true, uh, particularly with the Anglo-Saxon kings. They had uh, traced or made up their ancestry going the whole way back, I think, to Adam and, uh, you know, took that as, as their evidence of being of divine blood. But then you look at guys like Svein Forkbeard, who uh, was uh, born of a, they say, born of a serving girl and fought his way to the top. And I think it's like you said he more or less asserted, hey, I wouldn't have gotten here if it wasn't for God's blessing. And the same for uh, William the Conqueror. I mean, he was born a bastard, uh, spent most of his youth on the run trying to avoid being assassinated, had to unite Normandy by force. And uh, he, he viewed it as I could not have accomplished all this if I did not have God's blessing. So you, when you got to be a king, even if you got there the hard way, even if you usurped the throne from a previous king who was supposedly blessed by God, well, you had a free ticket from God because God, you know, put you in the put you on the throne. So it was uh, they had their own philosophical way of working that stuff out. Well, let me ask you this. Now, I know I always bring up this uh, historian. I'm sure you. I don't know if you guess who I'm going to be talking about. I always say that I butcher his name. You know who I'm talking about. <laughs> Uh, I don't know. All right. Uh, Hilaire Belloc. 
that is how you pronounce it. I actually, I, because of the last interview I had with you guys that came up, so I actually looked it up. In English, it is Hilaire Belloc. In French, it's Hilaire Beloch. There you go. Well, uh, that, that works out. Now, now uh, it is officially settled. Now we know how to say it. So it, it will no longer play. You got us. me on this show to be an authority. There it is. There's the, the, the authority decision. Right. Yeah, we can we can end the show now. So. Yes, yes. I visited the man's grave. Same one as uh, Jim Morrison, but in and Chopin. And what was that? What are those two lovers? Uh, it's it's all the same. It's all the same, ladies and gentlemen. You can go back to the previous two episodes <laughs> with Don, and it's the same thing. Uh, well, Bel- Heller Belloc said that Edward the Confessor promised William the Conqueror or William of Normandy at, at the time the throne. You know, once he de- once he was deceased. Now, uh, do you know of any evidence of this? Um, and if you know, and and what are your thoughts? Who who was the uh, who was the between William and and Harold? Who was the usurper, and which one was the rightful heir? Boy, uh, it did happen. Uh, it's some historians still question it because the the Normans claimed that it did happen because, of course, they wanted to justify later events, William's conquest of England. The Anglo-Saxons made little of it because they, you know, didn't want William to have the right to come over and conquer it. They didn't want him to have any claim. Uh, but the, from all the, all the sources that I looked up and read about the events, Edward did promise the throne to William because they were kinsmen. Uh, Edward the Confessor was half Norman himself and he was childless. So in the 1050s, when the God family of Godwin, Earl Godwin, uh, the most powerful Earl in England, when they were out of power temporarily and exiled, Edward the Confessor had William come over and promised him the kingdom. Now, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle does attest that William did visit about that time. It just doesn't say what Edward and William talked about. The, the Normans are the ones who said Edward made this promise. Now, the crux of the matter is that uh, about 1064, 1065, Harold Godwinson, uh, Earl Earl Godwin's son uh, was shipwrecked in France. And according again to the Normans, he promised uh, Duke William uh, that he would give the kingdom to William upon Edward's death. And again, the English sources make no mention of that. And uh, it's probable that Harold Godwinson just wanted to cover that up. He was basically a prisoner at that point in Normandy, and he would have said anything to get out of there. And once William had that promise, made him promise on the bones of a saint, uh, swear to it. And William left him go on that basis. Once Harold got back to England, uh, 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 Edward the Confessor in the first week of January is dying. Now Harold Godwinson is back in power. Duke William is over across the channel. He's pretty much out of the picture. And Edward goes to Harold as attested by witnesses. Uh, says, you know, I want you to have the kingdom. He realizes that Duke William is not in the picture. He wants Harold to have the kingdom. So it was really Edward the Confessor that sort of triggered the whole thing by basically promising the kingdom to whoever happened to be in front of him at the time. And whether it was Duke William or Earl Harold, later King Harold, that's what the that's what the Norman conquest was about. Hmm. How long did his his reign last? Oh, 
Well, he becomes king in the first weeks of uh, January of 1066. And uh, by October of 1066, Duke William has invaded. And that's where the story ends. I, is, do you think most of your listeners are going to have an idea how it turns out? I don't want to give away a spoiler alert here. <laughs> well, here's the thing. If our listeners have not heard of the Battle of Hastings in 1066, <laughs> then we're doing something wrong. Um, <laughs> Good point. Good point. And to that point, you sort of gave away the story with your book, The Last Viking. So you, and we already had you on the yeah, show. For, yeah. And hopefully most of your listeners have read that. If they hadn't, go out and buy a copy. Go out and buy it. Yeah. And then uh, mail it to you and get it signed and then put it in a, in a vase uh, or something <laughs> along those like a shadow box. Um now, here's the thing that that bothers me about um, how things end up for Harold, um, because f for for my money, I, I sort of start getting um, a little attached to Harold. I'm a I'm a big fan of, of William the Conqueror or, or at the time, William the Bastard uh, or just Duke William, a big fan of him. But I'm also a fan of Harold Godwinson. Um, do you think that Harold could have won had he not rushed out to meet William, uh, when he invaded from Normandy at the battle of Hastings and what were Harold and William's strategies during the battle? Well, you have to remember that prior to the battle had been the battle of Stamford bridge way up in the North of England where, uh, King Harold, God Winston had to rush the whole way up like 200 odd miles uh, in the space of a week force march. Uh, in my opinion, one of the greatest feats of military, of medieval military strategy ever conducted, uh, went up there and won that battle. And then all of a sudden finds out that Duke William had invaded in the south and had to force march all the way back down. Now, there was a pause once Harold got back down to London. And I think both guys were sort of sizing up the situation, uh, Harold did, they say that Harold rushed into battle, but I think Harold wasn't necessarily rushing into battle. He was rushing to try and pin down uh, Duke William because although Hastings now is just a smooth stretch of shoreline in the South of England, back then it was full of tidal inlets. It was actually on a peninsula. And uh, I think Earl Harold's or King Harold's strategy was to more or less block off the end of that peninsula and pin Duke William on it because it was October. Winter was soon coming on. Harold could send his fleet around the back and keep Duke William pinned there over the winter, in which case the Normans would just freeze and starve and there would not have to be a battle. Now, Duke William's strategy was to not be pinned on that battle so or on that peninsula, I mean. So when uh, Earl Harold came down and was anywhere near, it was to Duke William's advantage to, you know, have a battle and get it over with one way or the other. What I found perplexing is that during this period of time, there were three battles that took place in a short period of time and everybody lost based on the same strategy, which was <laughs> the fake, the fake retreat. Go through that. Like, how did that freaking happen? Well, the, the main strategy for infantry in that period was uh, the shield wall. And if you've ever watched The Last Kingdom or any of the medieval shows, you see where the guys all line up with their shields edge to edge or slightly overlapping. 
and you've got your main guys, uh, the best armored guys, the house carls behind that with their axes and their spears and basically just doing their killing over top of it, sticking their spears out through it because cavalry horses will not throw themselves on heads of spears. So uh, the shield wall is impervious to cavalry. Now, both the Vikings and the Anglo-Saxons were Teutonic peoples. They both fought that same way. They rode horses to battle, but they didn't ride horses in battle. They all fought on foot. The Normans had a different thing. They had, although they were the sons of Vikings, the, de the descendants of Vikings, they had sort of adopted the French method of warfare. Uh, back when Charlemagne was founding the Holy Roman Empire, he uh, adapted to cavalry tactics. The, French, the Europeans were all used to that from the Huns, you know, the step riders coming over and invading in the Middle Ages. And Charlemagne used cavalry to get to the far reaches of his empire. So the Normans picked that up from the French and they had a tradition of cavalry. Uh, again, at all these battles, the only way to defeat a shield wall uh, is to you either get around it or break it, which is almost impossible, or fake a retreat and get the guys behind the shield wall to to do to come down after you. Most of these shield walls were set up on high ground. Uh, you had that at the Battle of Stamford Bridge or the Battle of Fulford right before that. You had the Northumbrians run their shield wall along the lip of a ditch where the Vikings had to run through the, the ditch and go slipping up the side to try and get at them. The Vikings faked a retreat. The Northumbrians and the Mercians broke their shield wall and came after them. The Vikings rushed into the break, got behind the Northumbrians and drove the Mercians back. And at the Stamford Bridge a week later, same thing. Uh, uh, Earl uh, King Harold Godwinson had actually from his time that he was in Normandy tried to use cavalry to break the shield wall. The Vikings actually bent their shield wall around in a circle to make it completely impervious. It could not be outflanked. The horsemen could ride around it, could not break it. Ultimately, the Anglo-Saxons faked a retreat and the Vikings, yeah, there must have just been an overpowering urge after you'd been there you know, sweating, seeing your friends get killed. Uh, it must have just been an overpowering urge to believe it when the, when the enemy finally folded and ran. But once you break a shield wall, you know, it's, it's piecemeal. It can be taken apart. At Hastings, same thing. Uh, the Anglo-Saxons are all along a ridge top. Their shield wall can't be broken. The, the Bretons on the Norman left flank fake, well, it's not sure that they faked that retreat. That retreat might have actually been real, but the Anglo-Saxons on the right, on their right, came down after them, broke their shield wall. The Norman cavalry was able to get in behind them and cut it to pieces. They think they did that again on the left flank as well. So all three of these battles were fought with shield walls, and they all were all were won or lost the same way by feigned retreat. You know the. The battle between, um, more or less, I guess you could say, Tostig and King Harold Hardrada, um, which was with with the Vikings when they when they came in and fought the Northumbrians and Mercians. I I, I will pose this question to you and uh, let me know. Like we we mentioned, did Harold Godwinson rush into battle against William the Conqueror? Before that, you had the Battle of Stamford Bridge. Before that, you have the battle between uh, the Vikings, more or less, and the Northumbrians and the Mercians. The Northumbrians and the Mercians, had they didn't know if King Harold Godwinson was on his way. But 
Had they waited and combined their armies, do you think that because um, Harold Godwinson defeated you know the Vikings anyways at Stamford Bridge, had they combined, there would this is me assuming there would have been far more soldiers or men left over from that victory against the Vikings to go down and face William the Conqueror. Do you think that if the Northumbrians and the Mercians had just waited for Harold Godwinson to show up, that they would have defeated William the Conqueror? I think they could have. I Yeah, I do. I mean, the, the, between them, the Northumbrians and the Mercians had, you know, as many men as Harold had, as Harold Godwinson had when he arrived up there. They were in the same sort of predicament, though. They had to force a battle. They were, uh, they could have ended up under siege in York, uh, the, the capital of uh, Northumbria up there. But at this point in the year, it's October, the harvest is coming up. You can't, you can't be in a city eating up your stocks while all your grain and fruit is out there rotting in the fields or being eaten by the Vikings. They had to come out and force a battle. Also, I don't think they were completely confident that King Harold was going to come up and rescue them because the Northerners, the Northern English, and the Southern English had not always been on great terms. They were lately because Harold Godwinson had married the uh, Northern Earl's sister. And by that, you would think everybody's united. They're all one big happy family. But I think they might have suspected that Harold Godwinson was just going to let them hang up there because he was his main his main focus was on the Norman invasion, which had not yet come. So I think they both decided that they had to go out and fight the Vikings. If they had survived the Battle of Fulford and been able to throw in with Harold Godwinson, well, they certainly would have won the Battle of Stamford Bridge. And I think they probably could have won against uh, against Duke William at Hastings as well. Now, you mentioned that um, when Harold Godwinson gets down um, to more or less the, the southern coast of, of England to face William the Conqueror, he is focused on pinning down William in a bad position uh, right. for battle. And obviously, I mean, anybody who knows just military strategy 101, um, position is, is, is key. It is key. Right. Um, but in this instance where you have men, like you said, it's one of the great feats of medieval uh, military history to march 200 plus miles and then march back, um, in, in, in a very short period of time and not give yourself too much time to rest. What do you think is more important overall position or the energy and strength of your military? I think it would have been I think it would have been position because the English the English did arrive uh, in time to to block to block William on his peninsula. They were in a good position. They had the high ground. Uh, you know, I think that they they had had a week to rest uh, between arriving in London and and going down to Hastings. So I think the I think the position was was the key if they had not abandoned it. I mean, once you abandon a position, then you've got nothing, right? So I think the position was the key. So more or less, Harold Godwinson made the made the right calls. It just came down to giving away your position. Right. Yeah. I think he's uh, he gets a lot of bad press because uh, the Normans, you know, history is written by the winners. The Normans, spoiler alert, won the Battle of Hastings. And uh, it was their writers who 
basically described the situation. Uh, and they always portrayed Harold as this oath breaker because he broke the, you know, broke that oath that he gave Duke William when he was shipwrecked in France. And I don't really, A, I don't think Harold could have done anything else in that position. And as I said, for somebody to have done what he did, that forced march north and again back down south, um, you know, your men have to love you to do something like that for you. I, I think he would have been a, a good king and uh, just didn't, the dice didn't roll his way. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with you. After reading your works, um, that win or lose on, on either, on either side, William or Harold, I think, uh, England would have been in a good position either way. Mm -hmm. Um, last question, your personal opinion on, you know, you got all these, uh, shows and movies that come out about Vikings. What are some of the, the shows and, or movies, uh, that you think sort of accurately at least portray, uh, the world of, of the Vikings and, and if some are better at being uh, more historically accurate than others? Well, the first one to compare uh, my book to, it would be Vikings Valhalla, because that's basically going to tell the same story. And I, I, when I was working, on, initially started working on the book, the, the first season of the show was coming out. I thought, wow, this is great. You know, this is really going to stir up interest from my book. But in like the first episode, uh, takes place in the year 10,002 and uh, Harold Hadrada is already shown as being middle-aged and that's in like the first five minutes of the show I think and Harold Hadrada wasn't even born until 1015 and right away I'm slapping myself saying well this is you know this is not going to be a documentary it's going to be entertainment and as the show goes on uh, I, I'm not a fan it just uh, it seemed to me all the a lot of the characters in here in besides Harold, a lot of the characters who are middle aged actually start my story. They were kids and uh, at the beginning of the at the beginning of the millennium. And they're all middle aged in that show. They're all it just seems like they took the famous names and some of the famous events and just threw them all together, you know, and tried to make a story out of it. So I'm not a big fan of that one. That movie that came out uh, a couple of years ago, I think it was called The Northman. Um, it was sort of this a retelling of the story of Hamlet. Well, Hamlet was actually a retelling of this story. It took place in Viking Iceland. I thought that one seemed very realistic to me. I mean, those guys, they were not pretty. Uh, they were living in, you know, really run down little hovels carved out of mountainsides. I thought that seemed to me to be pretty realistic. Um, and, I, you know, I, I was disparaging Vikings Valhalla for being entertainment. I I, I don't mind it being entertainment. I thought that show, The Last Kingdom, that was out a couple of years ago and wrapped up, I was very much into that show. And that was nowhere near historically accurate. Uh, Uhtred the Bold, who is the main character of that book, that's uh, 150 years before my book when he actually lived. He's actually a character in my book, The Battle for the Island Kingdom. But uh, they sort of just moved him to that period of history for the purposes of the story. And I didn't mind that. I mean, it's drama, it's entertainment. You take liberties. Um, just not a big fan of Vikings Valhalla. That's all. Okay. Yeah. And uh, the the um, the Last Kingdom is based off on uh, Bernard Cornwell's work, right. Right. Yeah. And he's he's good stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I I read the Last Kingdom, and I I think Edric the Bold or Udric the Bold is in the book. So. 
I, I, yeah, I don't even uh, think it was like you know Bernard Cornwell being like, "Hey, don't be doing that." Or like, I think it was. I think that was actually in the book too. So, but um, it, obviously, Alfred is a significant part in in that book uh, as well. Well, hey, Don, this was a lot of fun. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, greatly appreciate it. Uh, it's always great to have you. Uh, you're, I enjoy you're being here. I mean, uh, you know, I'm a history writer and, you know, 99% of the people that I know, you can't talk to them about this stuff. I mean, you talk about your listeners know the Battle of Hastings, but the vast majority of people I go up to and ask them about the Battle of Hastings will just look at me like my dog, you know, trying to figure out what I'm talking about. And, uh, that's why I love coming on your show. Well, it's good to know that your dog makes the same face that my dog makes at me. Um, <laughs> he's always like, what are you trying to tell me? And I'm like, I don't even know why I'm trying to speak English to you. So, well, hey, Don, thanks again for joining us. We greatly appreciate it. Take care, Don. No problem. I hope to see you again. Dude, that was, as always, a lot of fun, uh, good stuff, and ton of information. He's always, he's always a, a joy to have on the show. Yeah, I, I love talking to him. Now, I, as you know, I haven't read his book yet. Um, I, I do plan on it. But, um, you know, I want to I am going to compare his book with the uh, St. Gildas book uh, that we uh, mentioned earlier. Because, um, you know, it, you know, and there's also uh, I, I think it's called the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles. And a few other books that even talk about King Arthur. So, all that, you know, everything that happened before 1066 is kind of a big blur because there's really, you know, it wasn't like what was going on with Charlemagne where everything was uh, written down and whatnot. So this will be this will be a pretty interesting book to read. Yeah, yeah. It, no, it, I, I really, really enjoyed it. Uh, wrote a really good review for it for the Epoch Times. Um, as of this recording, it has not been published yet, but you can uh, go on to the Epoch Times and just search my name and find all of my reviews and everything that I do uh, history related. Well, I know that you are leaving. You are heading out of town, so you are ready to get up and go. So I won't hold you any longer, man, but I, uh, I wish you a safe trip to wherever you're going, whoever you are massacring. And I wish you all the best. Yeah, thank. You. I'll be I'll be back tomorrow. I just I have a birthday party to go to. It's it's out of town, so um, but yeah, that's all that's all it is. So, all right. Well, I wish you the best, my friend. Well, thank you, and sir. I will sir. chat with you later, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, we hope that you have. Let's see, when is this coming out? Post Thanksgiving. Well, we hope that you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. We will talk to you next week.